The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Louder? Let's see if that. So how's that for you? Still louder still? Or is that good for people out there? Good out there? Okay. <clears throat> So uh, this evening I would like to talk about uh, Buddhist practice and caring for our world, caring for the environment and specifically. When I I went to college at a place called uh, University of California, Santa Barbara in 1972, that was a very long time ago, ancient history. and. Just before I got there, there was a massive oil spill from the uh, oil well just off the coast. And and, uh, all this oil washed up on the beaches. And and then independent of that, the students burnt down the Bank of America in town. That had more to do with the Vietnam War. So it was exciting times. Perhaps all times are. And, um, and so I came to that college, and one of the things then that I started uh, becoming aware of was um, the issues of ecology and became an environmentalist. So I got a major in environmental studies. And when, I, uh, when we were engaged in exploring these issues at the times, It had a big impact on me, kind of formative impact on me to study these things and learn about them. And as we explored them, uh, the question became, um, you know, how could we respond to these issues the best? And and so at some point in our late night dorm conversations exploring what to do, it seemed that um, studying the science of the environment, as good as it was, was an important thing to do. But it wasn't really going to make any important change. And what we needed was to get involved in politics. And so we started taking political science classes to learn about that. And so our late night conversations continued. And after a while, it seems like politics wasn't enough. You couldn't expect the government to do something. And so then in the language of the times, uh, what became interesting was... um, uh, had to do with changing consciousness. So changing the mindset, the worldview, the understanding of one's place in the world of nature. That there had to be a fundamental shift in our state of mind, the understanding. Um, because it, you know, the roots of environmental, human-caused environmental degradation comes out of behaviors of humans. And more deeply than that, comes out of what goes on in their minds, in their hearts. And so um, worldview or the inner life of human beings had to somehow be changed. So we continued our conversations or explorations of this and um, somehow we became interested in Eastern thought. And I think most particularly was Chinese thought. Uh, There was, especially back in 1972 or so, 73, I think there was probably somewhat of a romantic view of uh, Chinese philosophy and the wise Chinese 
sage who lives deep in the wilderness in a little hut and writes poetry in harmony with nature. And um, so the idea was to look and see about the, you know, what, the, what this had to offer us in terms of a change of consciousness. And that was my doorway into studying Buddhism. And I started um, uh, then studying Buddhism as a way of responding to um, the environmental issues of our time. So my first introduction to Buddhism, I could say, was not personal, didn't have to make my personal existential issues or my own suffering, but rather suffering of the world and what went on around me. Um, it wasn't enough to get me to practice, but it was one of the doors into that world. The second door, kind of similar to door, was it was still the Vietnam War time, and I was uh, of a draftable age. In fact, my draft number came up, and it was something like 239. There were 365 numbers you could have. It was done by, the, by your birth date. So I was safe that time, that time not to get drafted, but it was still, you know, we didn't know. And uh, and uh, then um, and so I was very interested in the issue of violence, and I was a pacifist, didn't want to fight. And there also I got interested in Buddhism because um, as a pacifist, in the you know in the intensity of you know intensity of these late night dorm conversations, I was always the most extreme pacifist, which meant I had to always defend my position. And my, posi- my, my position was that, um, that it wasn't passive to be a pacifist. That a, uh, someone who is like, involved in nonviolent resistance, nonviolent civil disobedience and things, uh, would be, have to be willing to put their life on the line for what they believed in. And in fact, there were people back in America that day who did that, you know, college students who did that and, and got killed, got shot in different campuses on, in the country. And so it was very alive that, you know, the idea that you would you know, you, if you protested, you could get, be harmed. And so, um, but one of the things that I, so I, I, that was my position, but when I looked inside of myself, um, I felt like I was too afraid to live my ideals. I was afraid of dying. So the idea of putting myself in harm's way for my ideals, you know, didn't, couldn't quite, and I felt bad about that. And so what I did was I went and um, was looked around, how can I deal with this fear of dying? And again, I don't know why, there were, why, why I settled on this, but there was something about in the, in, the, in the atmosphere about Buddhism that Buddhism seemed to me as something that would addresses this issue of our fundamental existential fears. And I got interested in studying Buddhism for the second reason, was to deal with this inner fear that I had. And... Um, and I think that, was, that propelled me into Buddhism a little bit more strongly because it had, was something a little bit closer in that I wanted to deal with here. So my entry point to Buddhism was, uh, in a sense, not so much personal, but rather uh, my personal response to the conditions and situation of the world. Why I was interested in responding to the world, the suffering of the world, um, I can't tell you. I mean, we can come up with nice theories, nice ideas, you know, like compassion, or that's a nice one, right? There was a, but, you know, that, it's just what it was for me as a young man. And, um, and this became a driving force of much of my life, was how do I respond to suffering? How do I deal with it? And in fact, at, uh, when I came around in 19, when I was living at, um, 
a Zen monastery, uh, I went through a big kind of personal crisis. I don't know if crisis is the right word, but certainly deep personal uh, reflection. It's been about a year kind of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? was kind of the question. And I had two primary directions I could take. I had one direction to take. In fact, I was um, scheduled to go uh, start a master's program in soil conservation at UC Berkeley. And I was very concerned with the soil erosion problems of the world. Back then, a lot of the people, uh, students that I knew, friends I had, were concerned with nuclear disarmament issues, which was kind of big back then. And uh, But because I'd studied... Um, uh, the environment quite a bit, the environmental issues, and had studied farming, agriculture, I was aware of the huge issues of uh, soil erosion in much of the world and had this idea that I would go do soil uh, conservation work in the Himalayas, in Nepal and places like that because of how, how so many people suffer from it. And so the question was, do I stay in the monastery being a Zen monk or do I go back to college? To um, back to you know graduate school in order to do all this good work in the world, you know that certainly the world needed it, needed it, and um, and so that was I spent a year reflecting on this, and um, mostly I reflected on it during the times off. I'd go for walks in the mountains. Tassara is deep in the wilderness, Los Padres National Wilderness, and I'd go for walks in the mountains, and I would think about what am I going to do, and what am I going to do, and. What should I do? And one of the things I questioned was the, um, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust people uh, who wanted to do good in the world. And so I, you know, I kind of thought, can, can you really be done purely? You know, so, so you know, I, I was, under, I, know, I don't know if it's, so I, anyway, my, my circumstances was I spent a year reflecting in myself on that question, looking at it, looking at myself. And I came to the momentous conclusion at the end of that year, one of the things was, yes, you could do it for good reasons. You could help people for good reasons. <laughs> it wasn't all you know, selfish and self-centered or something. So that was a nice conclusion to come to. And, um, but then I had this choice. Should I go back? They're waiting. The doors were open at UC Berkeley to go back. And should I go back or should I? And, um, and for me, it, it, was a, um, it was one of the few times in my life where I, a decision was arose inside of me uh, very quickly, immediately, kind of spontaneously, and there was this, uh, like this physical shift inside, and I knew. So what happened is, I've li- been living in Tassajara for some time, I think about a year and a half, Zen monastery. It was a summer, and the uh, abbot, who was not around that often, came, especially in the summer, came to visit, un- unannounced, and he was there for a couple of days. So I knew that I had a chance to go and see him, for uh, interview, to meet, meet with him and talk with him. And so that precipitated me to do some, you know, I went and sat looking at the river, the edge of this, uh, in the woods there, and looking at the river, thinking about this, my, my question, what should I do? You know, what direction should I go? Should I go back to college and study soil science and save the world? Should I go um, and uh, you know, do something else? And the, the other thing that I had in mind was to become a Zen monk. I'd been living in a monastery, but I wasn't ordained as a monk. And, and in sitting there thinking about this, there was a suddenly this shift inside of me, and I knew, like I know, like with no question about it, I knew that I was going to be ordained as a Zen monk. And after I knew, then I came up with the reasons for why. <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I like to have reasons. I'm a rational kind of guy, so 
I felt like I should have to, you know, try to explain myself. Also, I had to go to the abbot to ask him if he'd ordained me as a Zen monk. So I couldn't just say there was a feeling inside. I don't think that would have gone very far. Just this, but it was just kind of like, it wasn't, it wasn't like a feeling. It was like a, it was like a, um, a you know, a dramatic physical shift inside. And I knew. So uh, the, but the, so the, kind of the way I came to understand this when it happened to me was that um, uh, I wanted to respond. I, I, I would say, I, I, don't, I, almost shy, I don't want to use the word I here. But what, what, what happened was that there was inside of me, uh, uh, there was something that wanted to respond to suffering in the world. And, I wanted to, and that thing that wanted to respond to it, to meet it, uh, was um, wanted to meet suffering at its roots. And I felt that if I went and studied soil conservation, I might do a lot of good in the world. I might actually probably do more good in the world than doing the Zen monk kind of route. But um, I felt that uh, that thing inside of me felt there would, uh, something wouldn't be in harmony because I wouldn't be addressing the issues of suffering at their roots. And that uh, there are people for whom you can, who are, for example, people who are disadvantaged dramatically, but uh, it's good to help them. But helping them with material, the material life and, and, uh, and all that, as important as it is, um, it might leave them still with their own suffering, their own attachment and clinging to self. And uh, back then I considered that the deepest suffering that people have uh, stems from their attachment, their clinging to self, to self-identity, to themselves. And a Buddhist practice I saw was addressing that particular suffering at the heart of us and liberating us from that particular thing. And so I felt this is what I want to do with my life, is to really go in and meet that place. So I went and asked if I could be ordained as a Zen monk, and because I had this idea that I didn't think I was going to be a teacher, I thought the best I would do is I would have a little, uh, teeny little meditation hall somewhere and I'd have the keys to it and I would open the keys to help other people come and meditate. You know, just be the gatekeeper or something. And um, the, um, but that was the decision I took. And in some ways, when I made that decision in 1981, it was a turning point in my life and that my whole life started going in that direction. And that what event you know, and that dedication of dedicating my life to responding to suffering, to meeting suffering, in the guy—not in the guise of, but in the, in the, in the through the vehicle of Buddhist practice—is what brings me to IMC here today and becoming a Buddhist teacher. Um, kind of as as I followed that, or as I kind of had that wish, and continued my practice, the doors of my life opened up to end up becoming a teacher and becoming a teacher here. So what happened to the environment? The soil is still being eroding away in Nepal and I'm just sitting here in comfortable Redwood City, <laughs> you know, which is this nice middle class life, you know, and, you know, what's that about compared to the needs of the world, the world around us? The world has huge needs, right? My uh, deep hope and is that uh, Buddhist practice uh, is a way of transforming people uh, 
into people who then naturally would like to help others, naturally want to help the world. That it purifies or transforms us in a way. But it transforms us, uh, and uh, if, it, if we follow what Buddhism has to teach in the most deep, deepest way, the most radical way, um, it transforms us in such a way that it is not um, you that's responding to the world. Of course, it's you in some conventional way, but that the very the core clinging or attachment to self, or the core f- way in which we um, create boundaries between us and others, us and the world, fall away. And this uh, this idea of the of uh, the boundaries or the definitions or the conceptual identifications that we have about who we are and who we think we are and who we have to be and what uh, begins to fall away. And so, you know, in the, in the Buddhist point of view, the, 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 one of the great spiritual questions is, who am I? That question, who am I, is never answered because um, the I falls away. But then the question is, uh, how, you know, the world still remains. And with the world remains, and you remain a certain way without that clinging to self, what's the relationship then between the world and you? And how do you live in the world? How do you live in a world when the self-clinging has fallen away? And I don't know the answer for everybody. Um, I hope in my, uh, is that for a majority of people, the right answer, for the individual, not the right answer in some abstract, but for who you are, is that it makes you someone who um, contributes to the betterment of the world we live in, that somehow you respond. When I was living at the Zen monastery, after a few years, one of my teachers came to visit, and I walked up to him in the pathway, and we were passing each other in the paths there, and I said to him, um, be patient when you hear this, because it won't sound that nice. Um, I said to him that um, I have become a response machine, being a machine is not so human, right? But what I meant by that was that um, was that um, uh, machine meant that the usual self-conscious self wasn't there. It wasn't like I was calculating and trying to figure out what to do and, and defend myself or prove myself or be someone in someone else's eyes. This kind of the, the ordinary self-consciousness kind of was diminishing for me. And then as that diminished, uh, uh, I... Who I was was a response. I became the response. If someone uh, trips and falls in front of me, I don't have to think about reaching my hand out to pick them up. I don't have to create a sense of self. I don't have to create an identity and look at me, the good helper. It just, you know, it just, you know, or the person slipping, you know, and falling, you know, just spontaneously reach out and, and do something. And so this idea of, so it was more, I, I was discovering, to my surprise, there was this, uh, more and more that there was a response that came out of me in response to what was going on in the world around me. And, uh, and this became kind of what was guiding my life. And it, I, you know, it's a funny thing to talk about because I can't quite talk about it. And, you know, and I can say, you know, I wasn't there, the usual self wasn't there, but I was the one doing, you know, conventionally, it looks like I'm the one who's responding. But it was a very meaningful deep core inner way of being that it seemed to have more integrity and more freedom and more peace than any of the ways I knew before which were very uh, uh, self-conscious caught up in ideas of self self and others what other people thought of me 
conventional ideas. I had so many bag- so much baggage around self and ideas and shoulds and shouldn'ts that began to loosen up and be freed from the practice I was doing. And in that, this idea of self, in a certain kind of way, fell away. And I found myself responding. Um, and this is a very important idea in Buddhism, that this, something like this goes on, because the way that Buddhism is often taught, here in the West especially, is as a meditation tradition. And a meditation tradition, you sit and close your eyes, and you focus inward, in a sense, and, um, and so it can, it, it can look like it's all about me, myself, and mine. And sometimes the difference between narcissism and Buddhist practice is not so easy to see, <laughs> unfortunately. Even as a teacher, I look at some students sometimes and they make sense they're talking about self, you know, themselves, they're talking about their meditation, but is this really narcissism? They're just kind of like obsessing about themselves and, you know, self-improvement project and... Um, but, uh, and so what can happen is that people can look at Buddhism, Buddhist practice, and see it as something which is supposed to give, give me some great experience. I'm supposed to have this great enlightenment experience, this great, wonderful experience. And then you wear it as a badge and you become like a good person, a successful person. Uh, you can go home and tell your parents you know, that you did something good. Um, or, or that... Um, it gives you some status, you know, that if I have this experience, if I go through this transformation, then I will be something. And, um, and so there's going to be a lot of emphasis on attainments, on experiences, or getting something. But uh, the, I think the most radical teachings of freedom in Buddhism have not, to, in a sense, don't have to do with the attainment, but have more to do with disattainment. <laughs> is attaining less, uh, about uh, relinquishing, letting go, and free, being free, and not measuring yourself through an experience, you're not measuring yourself through an attainment, uh, but uh, rather letting go, uh, not letting go, but having, having, having uh, the self-conscious preoccupation fall away. And it doesn't matter then who, you know, what level of experience you have. What matters is if you suffer, and if you're free of that suffering. And what matters is if you encounter suffering, how do you meet it? If you meet it in yourself, how can you be free? If you meet it in other people, how do you respond? So I followed this route and somehow it brought me here to Redwood City to do this. But uh, in, um, behind what I do is the hope that uh, this is a way of responding to the suffering of the world. And, you know, because of, there's so many people here, right? Um, mostly what I, you know, mostly it's through people that I hope that what happens here at IMC makes a difference and transforms people, changes people. Um, but uh, not far from us uh, is our people who are suffering not because of, I say, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but the people who are suffering because of their environment is polluted. One of the sad things about here in California is that it's some of the most underprivileged people or the people who have the least voice to speak up for themselves are the ones who suffer the most from the environmental problems of California. So, um, for example, there's you know, five million, about five million cars in the Bay Area. It's a lot of cars. And uh, all that exhaust has to go somewhere. 
And there's two areas I've been reading about in the last couple of years where uh, that exhaust goes that has an effect on people that are not the more privileged people who drive the cars in the Bay Area. One of them is in the Central Valley, uh, especially children in the Fresno area, the Central Valley area. The smog that we have here sometimes blows. We create here, it blows towards the Central Valley and gets stopped by the Sierras. It just, uh, some of the trees in the lower uh, elevations of Sierras are dying because of the smog. But then and some of the kids in the Central Valley are getting um, asthma uh, from the pollution they have. And then they found, most recently I read that uh, here in the Bay Area, uh, that uh, along the freeways that they have, that the uh, children along the, who grew up off near the freeway where there's more exhaust from cars have a higher degree of autism. Now, we, no one knows exactly what the cause and effect uh, correlation is and what it is, but the assumption is it has to do with the exhaust and some, you know, all these chemicals in the exhaust that somehow that might affect something that uh, uh, contributes to autism. Now, who lives close to the freeways? It tends to be the disadvantaged people, the people who don't have the most voice and be able to, to, uh, to uh, do something about the condition they're in. So whether it's the trees in the Sierras or whether it's the rising water level in the bay because of global warming or it's uh, the pollution in Central Valley for the children or whether it's, you know, on and on. And, you know, you know I don't know if you know this, but um, we have this beautiful San Francisco Bay. And um, especially in the southern part of the bay, um, they have to be very careful not to stir up the bay water, you know, so, uh, the, the water, but the, 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 the ground under the water down there, because um, there's a, a lot of mercury in the ground down there, in the, in, you know, in the underwater ground, um, because of all the mercury mining in uh, southern, in the, down, down here and just west of San Jose in the mountains there. They were, uh, I think they were mining silver. And so, you can't, you know, if you if you mess with the soil, mess with the water too much, it stirs up the mercury, and that's going to be a problem. Better safer to keep it under the soil, under water, than it is to have it back out in the water where it's going to kill a lot of animals. And so, there, you know, I'm just mentioning these things: the litany of um, pollution. And so, what is our response to that? Do we live ignorant of it? Do we live ignorant of the consequences of our actions? Um, and what are the consequences of actions? How far? Do you, do you know where the water goes? Or do you know where your wastes go when you flush the toilet? Are you, re- are you responsible for that? Um, or is that someone else's responsibility where it goes and the effect of that has? Some of the computers that we have and cell phones we have have, um, have uh, elements, you know, heavy element metals that are the mining of those metals uh, are causing devastation in parts of the world. And again, once again, to communities that are often quite poor and struggle. And so we happily, and I don't happily, but you know, many of us, I buy, I'm thinking of buying a computer for my son for his school. I feel like he needs it. So what do I do about, you know, consuming these things and consuming things which have an impact on the world around me? I did a, um, some time ago, I did what's called an energy audit. I recommend energy audits for everybody. You go home and it's not too easy, not not too difficult to find a place. Uh, one one place that you can do it is you can do it on the Nature Conservancy website, but other places as well. 
and, um, and, and you, you type in um, your consumption of things, like uh, how much, you, you know, you look at your, your electrical bill and your water bill and your gas bill and all kinds of things that you do, and you type it all in. It makes it, they make it easy. And, um, and then you see, uh, you know, uh, what your energy consumption is. But more interesting, you get to see um, where your energy consumption is. So I fly to Boston once or twice a year in order to, because uh, uh, my, my wife's family lives there, so we go back for Thanksgiving to do this family vacation so my kids can live with them. So it's, it seems like a good thing, right? So it's not that much, you know, once a year, sometimes twice a year. Half of my annual energy consumption is, are those flights. Isn't that amazing? You know, so try it. Go home and do an you know, energy audit and see, see what... And what does that tell you about your life and what you do and the choices you make? And so, how do we respond to the world is a very important one. And what, I, what I've learned through Buddhism, and I feel very grateful to <coughs> Buddhist teachings for this, is um, Buddhism has freed me from obligation. And often when we hear about the suffering of the world, it comes with a heavy message of obligation. We have to do this, otherwise you know, you're a bad person or something. Or There's all these shoulds and all this. And um, I don't think there ne- we need to have any shoulds. Uh, you know, it's a heavy obligation. But um, for a variety of reasons, I think it's, compl- uh, I think it's pretty natural or normal to be concerned about the home we live in. And the home we live in is not just the house we live in, but goes in the neighborhood and the world around us. And we are, we're an extension, you know, the, the, the world around us is an extension of us. And we're an extension of the world. And to open up, to wake up, which is the Buddhist ideal, is to start paying attention to the world that we live in and to pay attention with intention, meaning, you know, look around and look more widely, read the paper, try to understand what's going on. And then without any sense of obligation or guilt or heaviness, uh, to do, uh, uh, I think if we're do, doing Buddhist practice, the practice of purifying our hearts or opening our hearts, then uh, a response will happen. And, uh, and, and the response will be different for different people. Uh, some people, it's going to be very local. Uh, it might not have anything to do with the environment, if that's what we're tuning into. But it might, you know, everyone has their own response. And I prefer to trust people's hearts and people's response. And so that's one of the reasons why I like Buddhism so much and why I'm so enthusiastic about being a Buddhist teacher, is I want to help people find... Uh, that purity of their heart, that openness of their heart, so that they can respond uh, to the world in a way that's effective and helpful. The, um, so from the beginning of a Buddhist practice, the environment and responding to the environment has been an important issue. And it's come up again. Um, you know, and I haven't been focusing on it much because I've been busy doing this stuff. But it's, it's come up uh, in a very interesting way in uh, in June, there was um, a um, uh, the, every three years the uh, the insight meditation teachers, uh, the kind of kind of consortium of that I'm or colleagues that I'm connected to, 
there's maybe about 100 in the world, uh, we have every three years a meeting where we meet to uh, talk about issues that we share in common. And, and it's a very nice time to meet. It's part, part of the function is just to create communities so we're connected to each other and not isolated from each other. And so we met this June at Spirit Rock to have one of these international Vipassana teacher meetings. And in the middle of that, uh, those, I think, three or four days, uh, someone rolled out a scroll. The scroll was probably uh, 30 feet long. And on the scroll were, uh, I think there were uh, 2,000 names, over 2,000 names. And it was a letter to all of, all of us Vipassana teachers from uh, practitioners all over the world uh, uh, evoking the ancient tradition that um, of requesting teachings. So there's a tradition of asking for teachings, you know. This is what I'd like to hear about. And so uh, requesting that the teachers provide leadership and guidance around climate change and the environmental issues of our times for our community, for our thing. And so that was kind of nice. I thought that was great. So then there were some other things having to do with the environment at that meeting. And so one of the decisions that was made was that, or one of the thoughts that happened was that, yeah, it's fine for all these teachers, maybe in their own way, to go back and do some teachings and do something about it individually. But probably, uh, you know, it's a little bit more meaningful to do it collectively. And, uh, and the way to kind of feel like we're all these teachers on the same bandwagon doing the same thing and like have a louder voice then. So the, the decision was, to, was that uh, we would all, hopefully all, um, celebrate uh, the first week of October as the newly minted Earth Care Week, the Vipassana Earth Care Week. <laughs> Meaning that, that would be, we, would all, we would all kind of, uh, for that week, those of us who are teaching that week, would teach about that or promote activities or you know, do a variety of things uh, for um, for this as um, a way of um, uh, providing guidance, leadership of how our community, the Vipassana community, can somehow participate in the issues of the environmental issues of our times. So I thought that was really great. So we'll do that here at IMC in uh, in October of Earth Care Week. We'll do. If, I don't know what exactly what we'll do. Uh, not that plugged into the environmental movements because I'm so busy doing this other thing that I do, right? But uh, it's definitely something I'm, I want to see us do and interested in. The, um, and so I think part of, uh, in terms of uh, leadership and guidance in this area, as a Buddhist teacher, I've been asked for it, right? Uh, one of the things I would like to try to convey is that um, responding to the suffering of the world, responding to environmental issues of our times, that um, uh, it can be approached as part of our practice rather than uh, s- you know, separate from practice. Rather than, s- s- you know, it's, uh, it can be, uh, the, way that, the way that we approach it can be done, in a sense, joyfully, happily, as a way of doing the inner work, the purification of uh, working for freedom, of learning to let go of the self-attachment that uh, can be the source of so much suffering. That it can that it can be a, the part of the practice of cultivating loving kindness and compassion, 
And so rather than seeing it as an addition, as a burden, um, I would like to convey the idea that um, for those people interested in Buddhist practice and meditation practice and mindfulness practice, that uh, responding to the suffering of the world um, can, hap- in a sense, kind of happily or eagerly, enthusiastically be, part, be, be done in the form of responding to the world. And so as a teacher, my job is to show how that can be done, how uh, in being involved in good causes in the world is not just for the sake of the cause uh, that we're trying to help with, but also for our own sake, that we can liberate ourselves in the process, that we can be transformed. And not just for our own sake, because if, if Buddhist practice is only for our own sake, it's too easy for it to be narcissistic. I hope it's for our own sake so we free ourselves from self so that, my hope is that so that we can even better uh, leave the world a better place than we found it, at least in our little domain. So um, if you come here the first week of October, I hope you do then we will uh, celebrate or engage in this process of exploring this connection between uh, the environment and <clears throat> Buddhism uh, together. Okay, so we have about five minutes. So um, any thoughts about this? Any comments you'd like to make? Or... <coughs> so here in the right here, Bill. Good evening. Um, Your name, for everybody's sake. My name is Nirali. And uh, one of the questions that I've been wondering about, because I recently was at this place where we were talking about how mindfulness is coming into corporations. And um, I saw a few different programs and curriculums of uh, how mindfulness was being taught in Monsanto, Genentech, uh, some of these target... The Pentagon. Sorry? The Pentagon. <laughs> uh, it is thought... I'm, I don't. I haven't seen the curriculum, but it is thought in the military or they've started teaching, not for PTSD, but more so that soldiers can be more concentrated when they're fighting. And, <laughs> and I've been thinking, like, because... Uh, so when I saw the curriculum... Uh, Everything was around how the actual person who's working in the organization could feel less stressed and, you know, suffer less and also end up being more productive. So a lot of numbers were calculated against the ROI of the organization. And at some level, I actually see the benefit of bringing these practices in these corporations And at another level, it makes me wonder, because in the curriculum, I didn't see anything around questioning how the corporation is affecting the world at large or the environment at large. And I see also how mindfulness is going into schools. As a matter of fact, I'm someone who is part of that. And I wonder if... it's, it's, It's the time to do that, like for, you know, like go into these places and like mindfulness is like water, you know, we're just trying to fit through these rocks somewhere and 
fit into the system or, or is it, is it, or is it or is it time to like fundamentally <coughs> question the entire system and like create some kind of a spiritual revolution uh, and like find <laughs> like come together sure. <laughs> to question fundamentally these corporations and our education system so it's just I'm, a question I'm, of life for me right now i'm I'm ready for another revolution <laughs> <laughs> you know I was, you know a little bit of been, been waiting it's been you know so there's a you know Many years ago, I read, uh, you know, these people study the history of countercultural movements, and they seem to, you know, starting in the early 1800s, they, they, come, they, come around, they used to come around like every 25, 30 years. And, um, but the last one we had was, in, you know, in the 60s. And we're, we're overdue. What happened? <laughs> it's, it's like the tech, the, the, somehow like the, the tech revolution, kind of, kind of the tech kind of uh, thing, kind of shortchanged the normal cycles. And we missed our cultural, you know, our counterculture in the 1980s or 90s. And so we're overdue. So I'm waiting <laughs> for one. And uh, the, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard. This whole thing about uh, bringing, mi- you know, bringing mindfulness corporations to the military. I think that... Um, uh, I, I like to believe that it's all just really good. Because the more uh, uh, aware, self-aware, and sensitive people become, and more relaxed they become, the more uh, uh, natural it becomes for people to look at their ethics. The more natural it is to have empathy and concern for others. And it might not work that way all the time, but I believe that uh, the majority of time it works that way. So I think it's a good thing. And uh, when I was in Japan, living in a Zen monastery there. It was very popular for corporations in Japan to bring all their workers to the monastery to spend uh, three days uh, going through boot, uh, Zen boot camp, and which was really like boot camp. And it was kind of like a... Um, a um, so they can be more productive workers when they went back to the corporation. So it's, it's kind of human phenomena to look towards practices to help a company. But I'd like to believe that things like mindfulness in the business world uh, brings out the best in people and... Um, and um, overall, but you know, I think it's a good thing. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, you, don't, you don't want to, you know, for those people who um, are interested in a spiritual life or Buddhist life, uh, hopefully appreciate there's something more radical that's possible than uh, stress reduction or the simple values of mindfulness that can happen there. Um, the, um, but I think we should encourage those things. You know, when there's good, it's good to encourage it. But then it's, maybe it's also a, a time to have um, mindfulness-based ethics training. I, I kind of asked... Who, who would, who, who, how many of you people here have done a mindfulness-based stress reduction course? And it's a fair, you know, good number. You probably found it beneficial. That's why you came here. So that's nice. How many of you here in this uh, today would uh, would be interested in attending a mindfulness-based ethics training? Wow, that's impressive. More than that, so I think that'd be great for our society uh, because it, I think it would have a very different uh, angle and ethic, ethical behavior than um, you know the admonitions and this is how you should be. Anyway, that was probably. 
So maybe we can do one more, and then we should stop because we're running late now. And I'll try to be I'll try to be brief in my answer. Um, actually, my name's Anne, and it's not really a question I have, but just a comment. And I so much appreciate what you've shared tonight, and I feel like I was just sitting here nodding. So I feel like if somebody's sitting behind me, they may think I have a tremor in my head or something. But it was just very powerful uh, for me to hear that and very inspiring. So I want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to hear that. Thank you. So um, we'll see you in October. Thank you.